Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and Roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi there, I'm Amy Wright. My guest today on Insights is A.J. Croce, who over the past three decades has established his reputation as a passionate piano player and serious vocal stylist, pulling from a host of musical traditions, part New Orleans, part juke joint, part soul. While his last album, Just Like Medicine, paired him with songwriting legend Dan Penn and an all-star cast of players, his new album, By Request, was born of memories, a favorite artist in shows, but mostly of late-night gatherings with groups of friends, many of them fellow musicians, with Croce at the piano taking requests. To quote Willie Nelson, A.J. has wisdom beyond his years. With his music, he represents his generation with a profound sense of honesty in his lyrics and quality in his delivery. The future of entertainment is safe in his hands. That's some high praise, if you know what I mean. I'm honored to have A.J. on the show, so let's get to it. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. I have to tell you, AJ, that my husband is a Californian, and after he got out of college, he went to San Diego. He kind of grew up in Northern California, but moved to San mm-hmm. Diego. Uh, weather's weather's better down there, it and uh, it was sort of the late '80s, early '90s. But he remembers seeing you multiple times uh, oh, in wow. various places in San Diego, but at Croce's, obviously. You uh, you played. I was quite a, a regular. I yeah. did. I had a weekly gig from the time I was about fifteen, um, and until I got signed, you know, when I was nineteen, and then I would periodically play still, you know, until my through my early twenties. You started playing piano when you were really young, I think. I was I was tiny. Yeah, I was. I started playing piano when before I could really walk um, in any stable fashion. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it's pretty crazy because obviously you're the the son of Ingrid and Jim Croce, mm-hmm. and your father was very famous musician, mm-hmm. singer songwriter, and your mom was also a songwriter, singer songwriter. So I guess music was in your blood, but even then, a lot of uh, folks wouldn't have become a prodigy like you became. You know, I, I saw this thing uh, recently, um, uh, this this uh, film where someone was talking about it, where, you know, I th- it's not necessarily passed down from generation to generation. I am a fifth generation musician on you know both sides of my family my my mother's mother was a professional piano player in philadelphia and had a a local access tv show where she played standards and stuff and uh my grandfather uh my great-grandfather was an opera singer on my you know father's side um and on both sides there was music um but that doesn't necessarily mean that that you get it. It's like, I think you might get the genetics to have the inclination to practice possibly, but not necessarily the ear to hear what you're looking for. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's kind of hit or miss. It's kind of uh, equally distributed throughout the world. Um, I was just in a place where I was able to, um, you know, follow what, what felt natural to me. Do you remember the first time you played in front of people and what that felt like? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
I played it around the house. And, you know, um, when I was real young, you know, my mom was going, please stop, stop, because I was always practicing something. But when I was 12, I, I would play at school and, um, and I was at a Jewish school at the time. It was just a convenient school. I wasn't like really a practicing uh, Jew, but it was, uh, it was convenient. And I got asked to play at, at um, this girl's bat mitzvah. That was my first gig. I remember uh, getting paid $20 and um, that seemed like a fortune. I also figured if, if I could make money at it at that age, uh, I was pretty realistic. I figured that if I kept practicing, I'd be able to make a living at it. And, and that's really been my goal all along is just, just to be able to make a living uh, playing music and, and writing and doing what I love. Yeah, well, so if you're playing at a bat mitzvah at that age, were, was there a little bit of a chick thing going on where you're thinking, Hey, th- these, these girls. No, <laughs> not at all. No, not at all. I was, um, um, I was pretty shy and, um, but, but music was a way to, 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 that I found sort of my extrovert, you know, and um, it was the place where I felt comfortable um, and sitting at, at, at the piano, you know, gave me a certain confidence, especially as I got older. And um, so, no, I mean, I remember playing uh, Ray Charles song and I remember playing, I think a Memphis Slim song and um, I'm trying to think what else I might've played at 12 years old, maybe um, might've been a little Richard thing or a Fats Domino thing or something like that. So when you're growing up, obviously, you play everything, classical Mm. music, you play jazz, you play. But at some point, something kind of sticks, I would think. So at what age did you start to say, this is the kind of music I like to play? I think I think I was probably 13. And um, I I, a friend of mine worked at this little art house um, theater that was about four or five blocks from where I lived in San Diego. Uh, it was called the guild. And, uh, I went to see this Jim Jarmusch film. Uh, I think it was called stranger than paradise or something like that. Anyway, there was, there was this Irma Thomas song. And even though I've been brought up on, on all kinds of music, I listened to my dad's record collection. It was really diverse, a lot of soul and early rock and roll and just R and B and old folk music, all kinds of stuff. And, um, and I, I heard Irma Thomas and, and I didn't just hear Irma Thomas. I heard Alan Toussaint. Alan Toussaint became um, really important to my musical development, not just as a piano player, but the way that I heard him arrange music for her, for uh, Lee Dorsey um, and for other artists really inspired me. It also taught me how to arrange for a rhythm section. Um, you know, on my first record, there was another person that did that as well, which who was John Simon, who I worked with on my first album and, and uh, ill-fated second um, one. Uh, we tried to make it, didn't happen. But um, I loved John's work uh, with all the different folks who, you know, he had produced. I especially loved the way that he arranged a rhythm section and it taught me a lot. The, you know, those two people had a, had a big influence on the way that I heard uh, a, a group playing together. What was it like to make your first album? You were, what, 19 years old? So 
probably hadn't been in a studio all that many times. No, I really hadn't. My first, my first session was here in Nashville. I flew here. Um, I had met, um, I had met May Axton who wrote, wrote Hound Dog, uh, or Heartbreak Hotel, uh, for Elvis. And, um, Hound Dog was Lieberman Stroller, but um, I was thinking, she heard me and she was like, there's someone that has to hear you. Um, you got to come down to Nashville. And I was just 17. And I was like, sure. Yeah, why not? And, um, and so I came here and I, and I went to meet Jack Clement, cowboy. And um, I walked in and Jerry Lee Lewis walked out, didn't pay any attention to me as he, and, 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 this was my first session, you know, Wow! you know, it was pretty heady. Um, it was pretty surprising to me to be able to just be in that situation. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't do a ton of recording. You know, I did demos of course, to try and get a record deal. And I probably sent I sent over a hundred cassettes out to see if anyone would want to do it. And I got a couple of, a couple of uh, folks that were interested. Um, most people said no, but um, Columbia was interested and they brought me to LA to do a demo. And, um, and uh, I think uh, there was another, another company that was interested. And so I did a couple of, of professional demos, but really I went into my first album having just been a live musician and that's how we recorded completely live, you know, uh, John Simon and T-Bone Burnett were co-producing and, um, and the band was phenomenal, you know, it was Keltner and, uh, you know, Robin Ford and uh, Ron Carter played uh, upright bass and um, um, Tim Drummond played electric bass. And then the horn section was amazing. It was like all these old, these guys who had played with Basie, Marshall Royal. And, and um, so, yeah, it, and we, there's no overdubs. It's, it was live to two track. There was, there's no way to, to get my vocal out of there. I'm playing and singing live. There were, you know, what you hear is what we did. And we recorded it, mixed it in the week. And that's pretty much the way I've recorded uh, ever since, you know, live and um, sort of in the moment. So you walk in, Jerry Lee Lewis is walking out. Did you know who he was at the time? Of course, of course. You know, I loved, <laughs> like a piano loved his. I loved his. I loved his playing, but I loved his showmanship. And of course, I mean, his voice. You know, I don't think there's anyone whose voice fits in that um, tape delay the way that his does. And whether it was with Sun or whether it was with Smash Records in the 60s doing more country stuff, which I love of his, um, I, I just, I just, you know, fell in love with it. Um, yeah, he could have cared less. So I was this kid, this 17 year old kid. I'd probably looked like I was 13 walking into the place, you know, and um, yeah. And I got in there and it was, you know, Elvis's band sitting on the couch in in Cowboys studio is you know Ron Tutt was there and I mean it was just like his his I couldn't believe what I was walking into you know but you also um I I've not really ever been starstruck um I'm sort of um I'm more interested in what people are really like and not what their persona is or anything like that. I think, you know, 
working with Ray Charles, touring with Ray Charles, that was that was a bit scary to me. Um, but and and you know the first person that gave me a break was BB King, and so that was a bit scary because I didn't know what it would be like to be traveling with him on the bus to be you know, with other musicians that I wasn't familiar with. I was, you know, playing solo opening. I might sit in, but it was, uh, it was, I was still just kind of learning the ropes of it. I I had the privilege of seeing Ray Charles before he died and he was touring in the late eighties and uh, obviously amazing musician, uh, entertainer, everything, complete package. What was he like and what was it like to tour with him? It was interesting because um, we just did a couple shows, um, great, really beautiful venues. Um, one of the guys in my band at the time had been with him for about 10 years, one of the my, trumpet player in my group. And so he knew the most of that group. And, um, and so that was, that was a nice introduction, but I had heard all of these stories from him, from, from Mitch, who, um, that, terrified me, not just of, of Ray, um, but of Joe Adams, who was his tour manager and, you know, longtime tour manager, someone that would, you know, fire a pilot mid-flight, land the plane himself and, and kick the guy off at that airport. Same thing with bus drivers. You know, he was just no nonsense. And, um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I was, I was kind of terrified and, they were so nice. Joe Adams was so nice. And, and when I came off the stage, Ray was standing right on, in the wings and gave me a big hug and, and was very sweet, you know. So it's scary, obviously, when you first meet someone like that. But mm-hmm. what did you learn from those experiences of working with uh, Ray Charles or working with B.B. King? I think, I mean, I think I learned... Not necessarily, um, not necessarily something musical per se, but a professionalism that was required um, in being a band leader. In in um, you know, I started working with a lot of musicians that were older than myself from a from a young age, so it it was um, it was important to learn how to be a good band leader and treat everyone right and be able to communicate in a way that everyone felt comfortable in the group and so I watched the way that that they did it and I also saw what worked and what didn't work um and the the tensions that could develop without good communication um uh and so you know there was there was an there was another guy named Floyd Dixon who was a blues piano player wrote hey bartender wine 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 uh one scotch one bourbon one beer back in the early 50s late 40s early 50s he was part of that central avenue scene in california and he and i he sort of took me under his wing when i was about 16 16 17 uh we played a bunch of shows in southern california and he would always say you know you can keep the set this long always dress up for the audience um you know there was like it was kind of a nurturing thing um, where, you know, he, he's like, this is how, this is how I've done it. Um, always get paid in cash, all of these things, you know. Uh, Good to and, know. 
yeah, I mean, it wasn't foreign to me, but it was every experience is new. I still feel that way. You know, it doesn't matter who I might be playing with. I, I think I learn from every experience. I try to. I try and stay open to it because um, sometimes even if I'm playing with someone that's not a professional musician, they have an approach to something that I haven't thought of. Maybe it's on guitar. Maybe it's a different instrument. I always feel like I can learn something. And as long as I, as long as I keep that, I think I stay fresh and I stay creative. Now, your, your father was obviously very famous, but he was, mm-hmm. he was gone before you really even mm-hmm. uh, two years old. So he wasn't yeah. an influence on you from the standpoint of being around. But obviously, his catalog of music was bigger than life, I'm sure. What mm-hmm. was your relationship with that fame? And, you know, how did you separate your own career from your father's fame? It's a good, good question, I think. Um, it, not that it hasn't been asked, but not necessarily in that way. I think that my, um, you know, I had a connection, obviously, to the music. It was around me all the time. It was also on the radio, and um, it's still on the radio. And I think, um, so there was that connection. I also recognized that people treated me differently if they knew or didn't know who my father was. And I didn't like that. I think there's this frenzy of renown in, um, uh, you know, around celebrity. People, um, they don't know what it is that they're attracted to, but, um, but they know, they feel like there's something special and they can't put their finger on it. So um, I saw this hypocrisy of how people treated me and treated other people, depending on the situation. I just really was turned off by it and never really cared about becoming uh, famous. In fact, I think it really hurt my career in a lot of ways because I turned down opportunities um, that would have made that possible, especially early on. Um, I just, I was trying to walk this tightrope of being able to sell enough records and bring enough people to concerts in order to keep doing it. And um, at a certain point and kind of, you know, and just in the last, you know, four or five years, I realized I'm really shooting myself in the foot by just not saying yes to a lot more. And, um, and the fact is I, I love what I do and I, I want, to share it with people. So, um, so there's that aspect of, of fame as far as, as far as the way that, um, the way that I, one way that I avoided dealing with, uh, with his recognition directly, uh, in my career was that when I did interviews for the first 20 years of, of recording and doing interviews, it was off limits to talk about him. And so by doing that, I had developed my own identity. And, um, and surprisingly, whether it was Letterman or you know, Tonight Show or whatever the shows were, they were fine with that. And, um, and they didn't press me on it, you know, probably lost, um, you know, other opportunities because I wouldn't talk about him. But I really didn't have a lot to say. I loved his music. I was fortunate enough to have his um, uh, recordings uh, at home of because he recorded almost everything. His practices, friends came over. I would hear how he interacted, what he was talking about. I got to know him, um, but he died really young. He died at thirty. I'm you know twenty years older than my father at this point, 
and um, and I've had a lot of very different experiences. Um, obviously, I lost him, but then I lost my sight when I was four, and and that was that was really how Ray Charles came into it. And so I got turned on to music um, through the sound and feel of it, and how it made me feel. So I think um, you know I. Starting in the late '90s, as the as the catalog reverted, um, I was already uh, running a publishing company, and I had al- already was comfortable with doing the business side of it. So it was really easy to take on the catalog, and and I found a way to really um, be involved in his music behind the scenes that I really enjoyed. I was able to promote his his songs his legacy and his music without having to be front and center um i could do what i did and and i could promote the the music that he created and maybe some of that is uh perspective as we get older Mm. we have to be our own person we have to develop ourselves and who we are that's every every child wants to do that but then at some point we all have perspective on our parents of course, of course. Yeah. And I think we're more forgiving. Um, we're more forgiving as both um, we and they get older. Um, you know, um, holding a grudge, I think, you know, hurts, hurts me, you know, more than it hurts anyone that I'm holding it against. You know, So, uh, uh, so I, I think it's really important to sort of let that stuff go. And, um, it's it's made my life better I, for sure you know do you find yourself now accepting some of those offers that you wouldn't have accepted before do you, do you feel kind of freer that way oh absolutely i'm you know comfortable um talking about you know my family i'm comfortable um taking those opportunities when they come and uh and i think you know there is there is sort of a fine line still between um Actually, I love, you know, doing that work and promoting his, his music and legacy. Um, and at the same time, um, it's very difficult um, uh, to sort of wrestle with the fact that when someone looks at me, listens to me, hears about me, the first thing they think about is someone else. And so if every time that someone looked at you, they didn't see you, they saw someone else it can get frustrating. And, um, and so you, you may get, um, you may get the first chance of foot in the door. That's not going to keep you there. It certainly won't. Um, not for the long term. maybe, maybe for a little while. Um, but then after that, it's, um, you know, I think I would hope people would let it go and judge, you know, judge me on my own merit. Um, I don't know that that'll ever happen. I don't think, I don't think it will. There's no sign that, um, that it will. Well, one of the things I noticed about a number of the albums that, you, uh, that you've put out is how much you collaborate with other musicians and producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's not every musician. Not every musician does that. And I just wanted to explore that a little bit and find out why that's important to you and what kind of value you see in those collaborations? 
I think it's critical to creating something um, original. Um, obviously, my roots are in all kinds of traditional American music. Um, and I, um, I wouldn't ever deny that. Although I don't want to be a museum piece. And, and I find that one of the ways that, um, that I can avoid that is by interesting collaborations. And I also find that I learn from them and, and it keeps me from being stagnant. It pushes me into new places. So I think that with, um, I mean, I can think of any number of collaborations, whether it's, you know, with Ry Cooter or with you know, Keltner or, or with Toussaint or with Mitchell Froome or, you know, all different kinds of people um, with different skill sets. Each time I learned something, you know, it was something really interesting. Um, I learned during the, during the recording with Mitchell Froome, because the two of us were, were lit, would lay down a track and then we'd switch instruments, um, go to a different instrument and we'd, and so it was just the two of us that played the whole, uh, played on the tracks. And he had such a different perspective on, um, on recording vintage instruments because like myself, he's a huge fan of, of vintage gear, but he sees it in a different way. It really taught me a lot. Most of my life I had thought you just, you know, mic the instrument really well and you're going to capture the beauty of the instrument. And his idea was that the instrument's beauty was innate, that it was there no matter what. And what he wanted to do was find a way to make it sound like it had never sounded before. And that was like a revelation because it opened up all these possibilities of what, um, what sort of soundscapes you could create with with not just vintage instruments, but all kinds of instruments or um, noisemakers of any sort, you know. I've always thought that pl playing piano is the quintessential uh, instrument for writing music because it, it's all there right in front of you. And it's one of the mm -hmm. hardest instruments to play. So I got to hand it to you. I've tried to play piano myself. I'm, I come from the fiddle playing side and I've always wished I could play piano. Yeah. I wish that when I, I started playing guitar late, I was in my thirties when I started playing, playing guitar and, and bass. And, you know, um, I had always done some percussion, but um, it, it was my goal when I started playing guitar was to, was to not think about the piano because I saw all these options on the piano and with the guitar, my skills were limited and um, and I figured that would be um, good for songwriting. And it was, you know, the first first song that I ever wrote on guitar um, was, you know, was something that ended up in the top 40. And um, and and I think the only reason that that happened was that I had completely limited all of these sort of uh, I guess, um, dissonant kind of chords that my ear sort of, and I, you know, mine sort of goes towards on piano, whereas on guitar, I just didn't have that. It kept it simple and it kept the lyrics focused on and people's ears focused on what I was singing about. Um, and since then, of course, I've, I've wanted to become better at the instrument and now I can 
it's, I don't see the the fretboard as I see the keyboard, and I may never. Um, but it's a lot closer, and I see and hear uh, things in a way, and will apply them. Sometimes playing guitar, sitting at the piano, to better understand the inversion. And playing another instrument, did that help you when you are arranging for other folks in your band? You know, I was pretty clear on on um, the scale of the instrument and the possibilities of it. Um, the player themselves, and this goes along with collaboration, um, brings something really unique to each to each project, each recording, each arrangement. So um, a lot of times someone's ability to do something special on an instrument, whether it's, you know, whether it's brass or woodwind or, or, or drums or whatever the instrument is, opens up the ideas of ranging that weren't there when I sat down and, and started putting this together in my, in my head. Well, let's talk about by request. Okay. Your, your latest uh, album. I know we, we need to get to that, although I'm finding this so fascinating. I could talk to you all day. So that's, uh, well, that's thank it. you. Thank you so much. By Request is your latest album. And I love the name of it because it, it sort of brings back that piano bar where someone's playing piano and there are people mm -hmm. standing around the piano asking the player, hey, can you play this? Can you play that? Yeah. And I know that as a piano player, you probably get that, whether it's with friends or mm -hmm. performing. But uh, what was your idea around this album by request? Uh, I wanted to bring the audience into my house because this was, I love entertaining. And in normal times, I have people over regularly. And whether they're musicians or just fans of music, um, I think at some point, you know, later in the evening, you know, someone will ask, Hey, do you know this song? Or, Hey, do you know that song? And, and I'll play. And so each of, each of the songs was a different circumstance over many, many years. Um, and those particular evenings were really special in some cases, even more so than the song I'm playing. Not that, that I tr I compromise with that, but having started off playing in piano bars and jazz clubs and so forth, I was not a stranger to playing covers. You know, I had to learn um, the American songbook. I had to, I had to um, know all the fake book changes and all that stuff to be able to um, make a living at it. And so it was really about narrowing it down, thinking about the fact I was going to be mostly, you know, the core of this group was my touring band who were great session players as well. Uh, Gary Malibur on drums and, and David Berard um, from New Orleans on bass and Garrett Stoner on guitar. And so that was kind of the core of what I was thinking of. We were on the road a bunch um, during that time. Also my wife had passed and it was really sudden. And because of, because of that, I just needed to take a, complete break from everything for a little bit until I needed to get back to playing music. And once I did, I, you know, I, I was on the road and I wasn't thinking of as much about writing. It was just hard. You know, I had had this muse for 28 years and she was gone. And so, um, um, I didn't, I, she was also 
completely honest with me about something, whether she liked it or not. And that didn't necessarily deter me from doing something that she didn't particularly uh, love, but it certainly gave me an idea of whether, whether it was decent or not. And um, so I think all of those things together just sort of um, allowed this to happen. And I narrowed it down for many, many, many songs to um, not just, like I said, not just the songs, but the, the memory of these great friendships and evenings and uh, collaborations. Um, you know, some of the songs like, um, like um, uh, Nothing From Nothing, which starts the album off, I had played that because it was a request um, and I played it very similar to the uh, original uh, except when it came to the arrangement, I wanted to have a different kind of horn sound than than the sort of circus sideshow thing that is on the original. Went more towards like a, a sort of tip of the hat to like Sly and the Family Stone or 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 Stevie Wonder kind of these ascending, long ascending uh, um, horn lines that you know cross bars and pay little attention except to the way that it it's feeling, you know, um, in the case of, of say like, um, the beach boys song, I, I sort of was imagining what it would be like if chess records had a, had a sort of psychedelic period in the, in the late sixties. And, you know, so starts off with that kind of classic, um, sort of blues feel. And then it goes into this, you know, the melody is so different. The chords are so unique. It, the whole thing is so um, very Beach Boys that um, it lends itself to that. So I got to play, you know, after I play the piano on it, I played harmonium, um, played, uh, you know, played organ and, um, and just treated it in its in its own way. The, one other song was uh, the Randy Newman song, and I'm a huge Randy Newman fan. Uh, uh, and that's probably not even in my top ten favorite Randy Newman songs. But the evening was so much fun, and it was it was one of those things where uh, the friend that came over was more familiar with the Flame and Groovies version of that from the early '70s, and. And so I took that, you know, in to the idea of the arrangement and imagine what it would sound like if Little Richard sat in with the Flaming Groovies. So it was it's all over the place, you know, with um, with the different ideas. Um, a Solomon Burke song, you know, I play that on guitar. But when I was about 15 or 16, I was in this sort of garage band. And and the way I discovered the song was through the Zombies version of it. And I was playing a Vox Continental. And, uh, and it was, um, and so even though I play guitar on it, I, I immediately after I sang and, and played it, went out to the, to the Hammond and played that little part as a little kind of tip of the hat to where I first heard it. Well, it sounds like you had a lot of fun making this album and, and, and it was also maybe comfortable to make this album because uh, these are songs that you know. And like you said, you have all these great memories of these songs and whether it's the song itself or the people you were with. A very, very cool album. I, I've listened to the whole of it and I love it. And I love the songs and I love the way you've arranged them as well. And I was actually surprised to find uh, how big 
the the sound was that it had all the horns it had it had it was a it was a full-on big sound coming from every song but every song was slightly different I appreciate it. Um, I mean, it was important that it felt live. It was important that we recorded it live. Um, as much as many musicians as as I could fit in the place. Had I, if I would have been able to record at my house, um, if my house was set up for that, I would have done it. I would have had a big party and just recorded everything in the way that it kind of kind of recreate that environment. Um, because that wasn't possible, I went to a place just about five minutes from me that's that's a converted house and and it had that vibe and you can hear it on the last song on that um, shorty long you know Motown song invited a bunch of friends over and you know brought um, a bunch of drinks and everyone was was having fun and hanging out and um, and originally when you know we had a mic in the kitchen but people were coming back and forth into the studio and we were just playing like that you know so um we had the mics on and and there was conversation through the whole thing um and then it just got a, a touch distracting so so i i just left the very beginning of it which uh um which i thought was fun anyhow um I appreciate that you listened to it and that you cared enough to ask me to join you. Well, the last time I saw you play, I don't know if you'll remember this gig, but it was in Memphis on the stage at the Orpheum Theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. I do. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been I've been supposed to make it back there um, for some time, but it's just strange. I'm not sure when, I mean... I'm sure I'll be back in Memphis soon. You're, you're not that far from me. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I always have fun playing there and, and the city's, um, you know, music scene has, has really seems like it's been revitalized, uh, in the last 10 years. I remember going there to record my third album. I was working with uh, Jim Gaines at Ardent studios. And I remember taking a walk one day, I was sort of walking towards Beale past the um, Peabody. And I saw literally, I saw real um, tumbleweed. I mean, there was no one on the street. There was it was just, it seemed like it was desolate. There were people in, in some bars, but it was so quiet. It was so different. Last time I went there, they were, I think they were, it seemed like Disneyland compared to where it was before. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, of good that comes from that just because it's such an important musical city. Yeah, Memphis is like a lot of cities that have revitalized the downtown. But like you said, there's so much musical history here and so many musicians that live here and work here. So it's really great to see all those areas that have that history coming back to life. But we would love to have you down to visit us at, at our studio in, in Memphis. So we'll, we'll do oh, that. I'd, lo I'd love to. Yeah. When, when all this is, when once, you know, once I'm vaccinated, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> We're all there. Well, thank you so much, AJ. It's just been a pleasure talking to you today and a uh, great new album by request. I love it and uh, wish you the best with the album. Thank you so much. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with AJ Croce. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more from the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. 
And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 